And we are very pleased to welcome to the program tonight a distinguished uh, physicist, astrophysicist, cosmologist, and one of the most prolific thinkers and writers uh, in that realm of scientific work, Paul Davies, who has just recently moved from Australia and taken a position at Arizona State University. He is the author of a new book about his 20th, I, as I understand, titled Cosmic Jackpot, Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life. You are indeed here, are you not, sir? I am indeed. Once to establish that, because I want to say a few words before we get down to business. Um, most cosmologists and astrophysicists, when asked, and I've asked this of many of them, uh, deny the existence of a transcendent and causative power, i.e., the existence of God. Uh, they say that they see no evidence that God or anything transcendent and causative is operative in the universe. Yet, increasingly, it seems to me, they are approaching the ultimate metaphysical questions questions which uh, may have one way or another been addressed by virtually all of the serious religions. Among those questions are, of course, why is there anything rather than nothing in the great uh, Heideggerian formulation? Uh, if the universe progresses from earlier to later events, what was the prime event and what or, quote, who was its cause? How did physical reality become mathematically ordered? And for that matter, is organic life leading through evolution up to man, an accident or an inevitability? Uh, I think all of those questions are addressed in your new book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a book that addresses all of the big questions of existence, all the things people love to discuss at dinner parties. And you're quite right that for centuries, millennia, it's been the province of theologians and philosophers. And now scientists have sort of blundered into this scene and I think that's inevitable, given the enormous strides that have happened in subjects like cosmology and particle physics. So scientists are tangling with those great age-old issues of existence and putting their own spin on it, inevitably. So you, you would say, would you, that there are now available some scientific findings, uh, batches of data, which give you some purchase on those questions? Yes, indeed. Uh, and the favorite one I like to quote is the nature of time, because, of course, most of the things that bother people relate to time in one way or another and one of these is what happened before the Big Bang mm -hmm. what caused the Big Bang and of course this is a, an issue about time and one of the things that Einstein showed us is that time is part of the physical universe it's not like some sort of uh, backdrop or arena space and time aren't just there they're part of the show and so if we believe as some cosmologists do not all but some that the Big Bang was the ultimate origin of the universe, uh, then it was the origin of space and time mm. as well. There was no time before. Now, that is a scientific finding, and the debate about what happened before the Big Bang or what happened before the universe as we know it was created and so on uh, would have been quite different 200 years ago. So science really has moved that discussion and along. And at the present moment, that is over the last 10 years or so, that question has been deferred. The Big Bang turns out now in theoretical formulations uh, held by some, not to have been the prime event, but merely just a little uh, bubbling out from some larger other universe, which may be one of an infinity of universes. The mind swims with a, a local, to talk a local it, side that show. That's uh, that's exactly right. Uh, by the way, do you, do you hold to that? I'm prepared to entertain it. And what I do in the book, because I always like to be as fair as possible to all sides, mm. I review everybody's take on these issues, and I find most of them wanting. I find them all wanting, in fact. And so towards the end of the book, what I do is to uh, throw in my own ideas to try to move the discussion along a bit. But on the way, I look 
very carefully at this multiverse idea because some of my best friends are, are very strong proponents of well, it. Well, it's strongly connected to string theory, is it not? One way of getting at it is string theory, although this infuriates other string theorists who hope no. that if only they could get the theory under control, uh, they would find that it predicts a unique world, this world, only one world, uh, and not a vast multiplicity, because in a sense it undermines the attraction of what is supposed to be the last word in theoretical physics, the ultimate theory, the formula you can wear on your t-shirt, if it describes so many different types of worlds that you could imagine almost anything and take your pick and it's in there somewhere. But now I want to bring you back to the first of the four major metaphysical questions that I posed. And we can come back to it by uh, acknowledging that this may be the sole universe, and thus it began with what your mentor back at uh, uh, at University of London, I guess, wasn't it? Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle. Uh, was called, University of Cambridge. Or Cambridge, rather. Uh, he Hoyle gave me my it, first job. But he also is the man who gave us the term, the Big Bang. He did. He, yeah. And this is a very curious thing. Fred, uh, for many years, was uh, pushing a different theory called the steady state theory, right. which had no beginning and no end. The universe, that is, not the theory. Uh, and so he didn't like the idea of a universe that sort of leapt into being uh, for no apparent reason. Uh, Wasn't he mocking Gamow when he called it the Big Bang? Uh, well, he, that's right. You see, Gamow in the early 50s had popularized the yeah. idea of a universe that uh, started uh, hot with a rapid expansion. And Fred uh, somewhat dismissively said uh, uh, something along the lines of, uh, well, to suppose that this entire universe, you know, just came from some Big Bang, uh, hoping to yeah. uh, pour ridicule on it. But of course, the name stuck. As it should uh, have. Everyone knows it now. It's a useful, it's a useful <laughs> uh, phrase. But whether we began with a Big Bang and ours is the only universe, or whether there is an infinity of universes and ours is just a little late eruption out of one of those other universes, we come to the question that I said Heidegger formulated, though he, he's not the first to ask it, but his formulation was, why is there anything rather than nothing? Right. The great mystery is that stuff is there at all. Yes, indeed. Uh, there are only two natural states of affairs. One is that nothing exists, and that's clearly falsified by observation. And the other is that everything exists. That is all possible things. Everything you can imagine, everything that is logically possible is out there somewhere. Does uh, one dare put the question to you this way? But then where did all that everything, quote, come from? Uh, right. Well, you, you, you're still uh, stuck with that ultimate question of why you've got everything rather than nothing. But hmm. the point uh, that a lot of people don't uh, appreciate is that if you want less than everything, so something midway between nothing and everything, then you have a problem because then you have to decide what was it that made the choice of those things that should exist and those things that don't exist. So we can imagine a multiplicity of universes, but if among all those universes, there are some things that are in, in principle logically possible but don't actually exist, then uh, we're left with a mystery as to how the decision was made. And we can imagine a sort of vast urn of possible universes, uh, all possible universes in this urn. Uh, maybe um, there are little, little buttons saying universe number 584 or something. Uh, and then uh, you can imagine uh, uh, the great uh, cosmic uh, creator uh, or chooser uh, dipping into the air and saying, yes, this universe goes on the pile mm -hmm. of really existing, and that, no, that'll go on the pile of nice But that still doesn't handle the question of why there is anything. Why is there an end full of, uh, full of uh, yeah. uh, possible universes? Uh, that's right. And uh, it seems to me that uh, w what you've done here is leap straight to the, the end of the book uh, once I have uh, investigated all those different theories about why the universe is so mm -hmm. weirdly biofriendly 
why it permits life and observers and whether this is a multiverse or a, a single self-engineering universe and all the rest of it. At the end of the day, we get to this ultimate question uh, of why there is something rather than nothing. Uh, and what I, my, I think my response to that is that this is the type of question that probably has no answer, that it's, it sounds like a reasonable, logical, straightforward question, but it could be uh, that we uh, simply uh, have fallen into the trap of uh, framing the questions, the really deep questions, in the wrong language. The concepts that we choose to discuss these things with uh, haven't come out of thin air. Uh, we, our, our minds have been built by evolution in the same mm -hmm. way that our bodies have been built by evolution. And so the concepts that we use to study the world, to inquire about the world, things like space and time and cause and effect and agency and all of these things that seem very natural and obvious to us, uh, are really the products of evolution. And it could be that if we invented some super-duper computer that was uh, truly intelligent and conscious in the same way as us and could contemplate and uh, uh, worry about all these things, that this super-duper computer might well formulate the questions about existence quite differently. And then we might say, you know, in another 10,000 years when we have this wonderful computer, uh, you know, tell us what the answer is then to these things or tell us what are the correct questions to ask and we wouldn't understand. It would be like Douglas Adams' uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, deep uh, thought computer. We get a, a nonsensical answer like 42. <laughs> yes. But in this, we've now shifted from metaphysics in a way to epistemology. Yes, we have. One could talk about the formal categories of, uh, of philosophy. And we are really in the Kantian Wittgensteinian mode, it seems to me. That is to say, for those who don't know those particular eminent uh, figures, both from Kant to Wittgenstein and beyond, the thought has been uh, we are caged. We are caged by our own mode of knowing, which is built into us. It's hardwired. Evolution gave it to us, but it's hardwired into our way of perceiving. And the thing in itself, as Kant called right. it, das Ding an sich, right. is not available to us. No, it can't, can't ever be. So there may not be order in the ultimate real universe of the sort that we perceive in the universe. Well, I think we have to be careful because it is uh, fashionable in some quarters to say uh, that we're projecting order onto nature, not yeah. reading it out of nature, and that somehow uh, the laws of gravity or something are just a social construct. It's just uh, a set of myths. Uh, it's just the, the way that uh, scientists have... Uh, cast their subject in a self-serving That's what the manner. most modernists have done when right. they try to assault right. science. I think it's all, all baloney uh, because yeah. uh, it is in fact the case that there is an inverse square law of gravitation and uh, the planets uh, know all about it uh, and it's simply a fact about the world. Um, but uh, when we're dealing with these much deeper questions, we're talking more about not um, how the world is put together, not describing the world, but we're really asking a deeper mm -hmm. set of questions like why is there a world at all? Uh, why are there laws and why are the laws what they are and where do the laws come from? See, if you sit down in a physics department, talk to physicists and say, well, where do the laws of physics actually come from? Uh, you'll be met with a stony silence uh, uh, because it's a distinctly uncomfortable question. The job of the physicist is to discover the laws by doing experiments and, uh, and using a bit of thought. Uh, and, and the question about where did they come from and why do they have the form that they do until very recently, it was simply off limits. When I was a student, I would have yeah. just been shown the door. If As I, I have asked that, that question for over 30 years of cosmologists and astrophysicists and so on, and even particle physicists, the answer you usually get, not always, uh, is um, uh, 
I can only talk about things for which we've got data. There is no data that possibly could bear upon that question. It all begins with the Big Bang. I don't know what happened. We can't, it's not meaningful to ask what was there before the Big Bang, since there was no time before the Big Bang. But they want uh, the laws. You see, they still want the laws. All we can do is find some transcendent exactly. platonic realm. We don't find ultimate causes, we find the laws that are operative and invisible. Right. That's what they, they tell you. Uh, and, and so there is this orthodox view that these uh, wonderful mathematical laws, which I love, um, and which we learn about in, in textbooks, were somehow magically imprinted on the universe at the time of the Big Bang, or they were always there for the, the, something before the Big Bang. And uh, it's, uh, it, it has to be accepted that they are just there reasonlessly. That's, that's what you're told. There is no particular reason why they exist, no particular reason why those laws are as they are. And a great yes. speculation to add on to that, as, as has been done in recent years, is that if there's a multiverse, uh, an, an infinity, or at least a vast, vast number of other universes, they may, they, in all probability, would be functioned by different laws. Right. So uh, these uh, laws that we know and love would turn out to be, as Martin Rees uh, calls it, like mm -hmm. local bylaws, yeah. uh, perhaps state laws as opposed or to city, federal laws. Or city ordinances. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, but you still, of course, uh, in, uh, need federal laws in this theory because you still need uh, a law-like mechanism to generate all these universes uh, fr from nothing, uh, and uh, you need a, um, an algorithm to distribute the laws that are available across those universes, so each one comes with a, a set of laws, and you need a whole lot of other things in the standard theory of uh, doing this multiverse, like uh, the theory of relativity, relativistic causality, and a whole, whole lot of baggage. So you haven't really solved the problem. You've shifted it up one level. So you've got, it's true, this multiplicity of city ordinances or bylaws or things valued in, a, in each mm -hmm. cosmic patch, but there's still um, a set of meta laws or federal laws or cosmic laws uh, which are unexplained. Another great question, and this is the one with which your book is particularly preoccupied, though the first half kind of runs us through all the available uh, major data and major theoretical formulations in cosmology and in uh, astrophysics and physics as it bears on astrophysics. But then finally, the basic problem of the book is given really uh, in the subtitle, why our universe is just right for life. Uh, or one could ask, why is our universe just right for right. life? And that's what we're going to talk about after we yield to one inexorable law of broadcasting, time for some commercials. And we return to our very special guest of the evening, Paul Davies, theoretical physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist, much interest in life elsewhere and the, that possibility, and author, uh, prolific author, not only, of course, of important scientific work, but of uh, very valuable, popular treatments of that work. He is now a professor at Arizona State University, uh, where you've just established a new think tank, shall we call it? Yes, cosmic think tank. That's the way my wife mm -hmm. describes it. Uh, so it's called Beyond, and its more formal title is Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science. So it's to across all of the sciences, but obviously there's a big uh, stress on the subjects that interest me, physics, cosmology, yeah. and astrobiology. Now let's come directly to astrobiology, at least uh, as represented on this Earth, or maybe throughout this universe. Though, that's, well, that's the first question, possibly. Um, is there, is it theoretically feasible that there might be life elsewhere merely in our own universe, or even more particularly locally in our own galaxy? Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, the whole subject of astrobiology is founded on the assumption, and it is only an assumption, uh, that life is easy to make and therefore widespread. Now, we don't know that, uh, and it's not been tested. It's possible to believe that it's such mm. a stupendously improbable set of accidents that are necessary for life to form that it's happened only once in the observable universe. 
but uh, optimists uh, suppose that there may even be life as close as Mars. Uh, and certainly as you go further out into the galaxy, it looks like there are many Earth-like planets. Uh, and so uh, it, it remains untested, but it seems to be a fashionable hypothesis. When the Duke of Wellington was asked how he defeated Napoleon uh, at Waterloo, his famous answer was, it was a damned close-run thing. Exactly right. Yes. This was also, <laughs> the existence of life itself is a damned close-run thing. Well, it is, and the way I like to express this is imagine playing the role of God and having a designer machine in front of you, a bit like these uh, machines we see around us in the studio mm -hmm. with knobs on, and uh, the knobs, uh, instead of uh, uh, changing the, the volume of uh, the sound or something like that, uh, they would, say, uh, change the strengths of various forces, twiddle one knob and make all... Uh, gravity everywhere a little bit stronger. Twiddle another nod, you might make all electrons a little bit heavier and so on. And then you can ask the question, well, how many knobs do we need to describe the universe uh, as we see it at the moment? And the answer is 30-something. Uh, so uh, then you can say, well, what happens if you were to change those knob settings? Now, uh, as I say to people, we don't yet have the money to do the real experiment. But as but for example, the theoretical what, experiment. what knob setting, if changed a little, would make life impossible. Well, that's the point. You find that a handful of these knob settings are uh, very, very sensitive. That is, the existence of life depends upon you fine-tuning those knob settings to extraordinary precision. And I'll just give you one example that's very easy to imagine. Uh, the, uh, anyone who knows anything at all about uh, atomic uh, and nuclear physics knows that uh, the proton and the neutron are approximately the same mass. But the proton's just a little bit heavier. It's about 0.1% heavier. And that means that it's unstable. Uh, so neutrons decay, free neutrons decay uh, into protons. Uh, but if it was uh, the other way about, if uh, the great designer had twiddled the knobs a bit differently and got protons a little bit heavier than neutrons, the protons would decay, and then there'd be no atoms. So uh, th it's, it seems inconceivable that there could be life of any sort in the universe with no atoms. So uh, that's one thing that uh, you know looks to be a damn close-run thing. But there are many others as well. And Fred Hoyle was, uh, we, we talked about him earlier, uh, and he was very impressed uh, because uh, back in the 50s, he worked out a lot of the details about how stars make uh, elements, the chemical elements. The Big Bang that we now know started everything off, coughed out just hydrogen and helium. Uh, and the life-giving stuff, like carbon, which is so essential to life as we know it, uh, was made inside stars. And Fred worked out the details of how that happened, and he found that if the nuclear force that is responsible for the reactions that take place inside the sun and, uh, and stars, if that were just a little bit stronger or weaker, maybe only a percent or so, there would be no carbon production or hardly any. So he was so impressed by that, he said that the universe looks like a put-up job. That's a, an Australian expression meaning it looks contrived, it looks like a fix. Uh, and he went on to say that it's as if a super intellect had been monkeying with physics. Uh, so he was quite explicit that the entire universe, when you look at its basic features, the way it started and the <coughs> fundamental laws, looks like a fix. And so the big question is, what's going on? Is it really a fix? Was there really a designer who sat there and twiddled the knobs and got it just right and designed a universe fit for life? Or is there some other explanation? Well, if, if life is that unlikely, that does tend to dispose ordinary folks, if not astrophysicists, towards some... Um, friendly receptiveness to the notion that there is a designer, that indeed intelligent design has been operative in the causation of the universe and more particularly in the generation of life, even if you assume that once life was generated, evolutionary process took over. Right. So uh, it's That, in fact, is the position of the last pope, and I, I think it's just been recently reaffirmed by the new pope. 
Yes, I'm not sure about the new Pope's position, but uh, probably it would be something of that sort. And the difficulty for a scientist is that, of course, that's not really an explanation. Saying God did it uh, doesn't explain uh, why it is as it is. It just says, well, we will never know. Um, and part of the reason that that's unsatisfactory is exactly the same problem that we were ta talking before the break about physicists who say, well, the laws of physics are just there. They did it. They, the laws of physics made the Big Bang go bang. Mm -hmm. They were just around. They exist reasonlessly or that we will never be able to explain them. So both the intelligent design argument and the laws of physics argument both appeal to something outside the universe to explain it. Uh, and so uh, I like to put this in terms of the, uh, the famous Tower of Turtles analogy that uh, we try to explain things in terms of other things, in terms of other things, and it's like a, a tower of turtles that uh, goes all, all the way down. Uh, and To the final turtle. To the final turtle. And uh, really the argument boils down to, um, is there a levitating super turtle holding this whole tower up? That's what uh, intelligent design people would say, that, that God is a necessary being uh, whose existence doesn't need explaining. God is just there, an unexplained being or an unexplained set of physical laws. Really, they're, they're as bad as each other in shoving the problem off into have you some ever magic talk, super Have you ever talked to the people at the Discovery Institute in Seattle? Uh, I know you were just in Seattle yesterday, in Seattle. weren't you? No, I have come across some of those people from time to time. Because that, that's the major center, sort of the intellectoid center for uh, intelligent design. Uh, right, theory. right, I'm aware of that, yes. Um, I haven't closely examined their writings, but they're obviously not totally fools, nor are they uh, by conviction uh, evangelical or fundamentalist Christians. They are, I think, people with a, a preference for seeing God in operation. Uh, well, uh, I really can't speak for individuals there. Uh, collectively, they've had a bad press because I think uh, their detractors uh, simply suspect there's a hidden agenda. Well, they're confused with, or at least they're lumped with the creationists, the That's more simple right. biblical That's right. creationists. That's right. Um, and uh, they are lumped with them, and whether that is uh, justified lumping together, mm. I wouldn't like to say, because this is a, a rather strangely American phenomenon, this intelligent design business, because what I tell people uh, back in my native UK and in Australia is that uh, it's not an issue in those countries, because there's not any impediment to teaching religion in schools. Uh, uh, and so you can teach uh, intelligent design uh, in religious studies lessons, and I have no uh, problem with that, uh, because uh, many people believe that, and uh, it um, has good historical roots. So those things should be taught as part of religion, but religion can't be taught in uh, American schools, and I won't comment on whether that's good or bad. It's a, it's a fact. And so this is really a legal issue. It's not a scientific issue. I think uh, you, you can... Uh, Lump all that stuff in, in religion, now, no problem. Coming back to uh, the main problem uh, addressed in your latest book, whose title, once again, uh, I rush to give, is Cosmic Jackpot, Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life. By the way, that's published by Houghton Mifflin and Company. This book, um, in its prior British edition, uh, had a different title. The Goldilocks Enigma. The Goldilocks mm. Enigma. Uh, why is the Goldilocks... Let's come get directly to it. What do you mean by the Goldilocks enigma? We all remember the story of Goldilocks right, and, and the and, three bears. Uh, and, and why ba is it an enigma? Ba baby bear's porridge, of course, was, was just right. Just uh, right. And so this uh, term, um, Goldilocks, is often used, I think, in popular parlance to mean uh, where a system seems to be um, just right for something. Uh, and 
our universe does seem to be just right for life. The, the knob settings on the great designer machine do seem to have been rather carefully uh, selected. But is that really a mystery or a puzzle or an enigma? Or rather, can it be handled this way? Well, of course, it's just right. If it weren't just right, we wouldn't be here to make the observation or ask the question. Yes. Now, some people, of course, will, uh, will say that. I think that's just... Uh, uh, being ridiculously dismissive, Is it? because of course uh, it, it, it's not an explanation, it's simply a way of uh, shoving the problem aside, mm -hmm. and I think we can do better than that. I think we can come up with uh, a scientific explanation for why the universe is just right for life. Ah. Uh, and we talked a bit about the multiverse. Maybe there's a vast um, multiplicity of universes with uh, laws scattered randomly across them. Uh, but I, there are other ways as well, I think, that we might be able to explain. And that is about to be revealed. Uh, but the revelation will be deferred for some three or four minutes uh, as first we go to the newsroom for an update from Elizabeth Hess. And we're back to Paul Davies. We're drawing from his fine new book, utterly readable and really quite fascinating, Cosmic Jackpot, Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life. We're going to the question of, um, uh, well, looking for an answer. Why is it just right for life? And part one answer you entertain as well, but it's one of, it's possibly one of many, many, many universes. So this one might be right, while all the other universes might be wrong. Yes, this is a, a popular idea. It's become more popular in the last few years, and there seem to be some eminent uh, cosmologists and physicists who are backing it. Who's on that uh, side of the picture? Well, uh, for example, uh, Martin Rees, uh, mm -hmm. who's... Um, the British Astronomer uh, Royal. Uh, he? He's British Astronomer Royal, also president of the Royal Society, and incidentally master of uh, Trinity College, which was Newton's College. and. Uh, uh, I often tell the story. I went mm -hmm. to see him in the uh, in the master's lodge there uh, recently, and the lodge itself is about the size of a, of a small uh, Cambridge college. Uh, and I said, "Well, uh, you know, did he have to keep house and keep the garden tidy?" And he said his only duty was to wind Newton's clock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Martin has uh, has been pushing the idea of this multiplicity of universes, the multiverse, um, uh, for a long time. Uh, uh, Lenny uh, Susskind at uh, Stanford University is another very strong. Who was uh, on our program just uh, a, a little while ago? It, that's right. Um, and his colleague there, Andre Lindy, has, mm. uh, has his own uh, natural mechanism for generating these universes, which is called eternal inflation. And uh, so has Reminiscent of your old mentor, Fred Hoyle. Uh, in one way, that is true. Yeah. If you take a, a, a sort of God's eye view yeah. uh, in this uh, eternal inflation theory, then what you see is that the superstructure of space is expanding frenetically fast. It's doubling in size uh, in a tiny fraction of a second, a trillion, trillion, trillion of a second to be precise. So you've got this uh, overall expansion, and then here and there, bubbles, uh, to use the term, nucleate out of this uh, and become universes. And they become universes. Yeah. So the Big Bang was simply the nucleation of our bubble. Mm -hmm. I like to call it a Hubble bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, and that there would be many other bubbles as well in other regions of space and time. Um, and the bubbles are being conveyed apart uh, faster than they're, they're expanding, so uh, they don't usually collide with each other. Uh, so we can't really uh, ever see these other bubbles. We have to sort of infer... If such a multiverse there, exists, there's theory. no possibility that any universe can be in touch with any other universe. Uh, there are variants where, in principle, that would be possible, but mostly the answer is not. So you no. have to accept this uh, as a theoretical model only. And so that makes it very hard to test uh, in any way that you can think of. There are certain statistical tests which might just pass muster. But otherwise, uh, it really is an act of faith. So how do we relate this back to there. the 
how do we relate this back to the question with which your book is pretty right why is the universe just right for life doesn't yeah. help at all unless these other universes are going to be a bit different and so the plan is that each universe comes with a slightly different set of laws the universe over there might have slightly heavier electrons the universe over there might have slightly stronger gravity and so on and maybe that's just random uh, and then here and there in this vast parameter space of possibilities just by chance all of the numbers come out just right and in those universes there's the potential for life so it's no surprise we find ourselves in a universe which looks contrived it looks like uh, a put-up job as fred hall said uh, it, uh, it of course we couldn't live in any of the others the, any of the bio-hostile ones um, so some people find that a satisfactory explanation i think it goes part way to explaining uh, what's going on, but it falls short of being a complete theory of existence. It's often presented as, well, therefore we've solved all the problems of existence, that's it. Uh, but it isn't it at all, because you still need uh, a meta-theory to generate the, the universes. Uh, you still need to assume certain things like quantum physics. We've been talking about the nucleation of these bubbles, Big Bang bubble universes. Uh, that is a quantum process in the theory. Uh, so you need uh, to assume quantum mechanics, you need to assume relativistic causality, that cause, the normal idea of cause and effect and the speed of light being a barrier, all that has to be assumed. There's got to be mathematical laws of some sort to be distributed. So there's a, an awful lot of baggage that you still have to accept on faith uh, in this multiverse theory. So it goes partway to explaining the universe, but it's certainly not a complete theory of existence, far from it. And where does this leave you? Or rather, uh, what are you settling for, if only tentatively? as a total model. Right. So I say two cheers uh, for the multiverse. Mm -hmm. uh, nice try, but it hasn't got us uh, there completely. So I would like to uh, try to find an explanation for as much as possible about the universe from within it and not appealing to something uh, outside of it. The multiverse people appeal to uh, a vast ensemble of universes that are outside our one. Uh, the, the people who say one day we will have a complete unified theory, all the parameters will be fixed, uh, are appealing to some set of mathematical laws uh, which just happen to exist reasonlessly outside of the universe in some platonic realm. Uh, the intelligent design people are appealing to an external unexplained God. So all of these people are in effect running away from the problem saying we'll push it off outside the universe and accept something on faith, the levitating super turtle. Uh, what I say is let's try and do better than this. Let's try and explain as much as we can from within the universe. And in particular, instead of thinking that the laws of physics um, are beyond the scope of science, let's try and bring them within the scope of science and ask why are those laws what they are? Can we explain them? Can we uh, explain the universe and its laws and the mathematical nature of those laws as part of a common package? So we have universe, laws, life, mind, mathematics and physics all wrapped together in a single self-explanatory, mutually explanatory package. Uh, and you can only do that by giving up one of the cherished assumptions that everybody makes from way back to the in the days of theology uh, when science grew out of theology at the time of Galileo and Newton uh, and that is the assumption that the laws are infinitely precise eternal immutable fixed perfect mathematical forms uh, and that's an idea that's been inherited from Plato and Greek philosophy and I don't believe it I we used to but I don't believe it anymore we are on the verge and we're about to do some commercials as well we're on the verge of laying out what is the distinctive idea that um, you present in this book. You've got a number of novel ideas, but the distinctive one has something to do with life, not as a consequence, but life as a cause of law. And that needs 
further elaboration. It does. Which we shall give it directly after this. And we return to Paul Davies. We are drawing from his new book, Cosmic Jackpot, Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life. Houghton Mifflin are the publishers. We are at the point where the all is to be revealed, I think. <laughs> at least the, the Davies version of what ultimate reality may be. Right, yes. So this is Davis's fourth way because uh, the, other, yeah. the other three were in intelligent design, the multiverse, and uh, the universe has to be as it is. Uh, so uh, I was saying before the break that uh, the uh, conventional view of the laws of physics is that they're sort of fixed, immutable, eternal mathematical truths that are just sort of there. Uh, and they are perfect mathematical truths, that uh, if you say, well, are these laws just approximate mm -hmm. statements or are they uh, infinitely precise, you'll be told infinitely precise. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll give you an example of one that I think is familiar to everybody. It's the law of conservation of electric charge. And you're told that, um, uh, say, the charge on the electron doesn't vary. And you say, well, it doesn't vary at all. Not at all. Not one scintilla, not one little bit. Um, well, of course, in practice, we can only measure to about one part in a trillion, which is actually exceptionally good, that the charge uh, on the electron remains constant. Uh, but uh, it's always uh, possible that if we could uh, be more precise about it, then we would find at some level uh, this law would break down. Now, uh, the question is this, uh, that if the laws of, uh, of physics uh, are um, already existing in this sort of platonic realm, uh, well then uh, you're stuck with them. But if uh, there's another way of looking at the laws, and this has really come out in the last 30 years, and it's um, uh, mainly the people who work in the computer industry. Uh, and uh, not uh, surprisingly, these people uh, are so impressed with the power of computation, they see it everywhere. They see it in nature. They think of nature as a computational process. The universe, if you like, is a gigantic computer. And in a sense, that's always been true. If you think about the way the planets go around the sun, um, if you tell me the positions and motions of the uh, planets today, I can work out using Newton's laws where they're going to be tomorrow. So Newton's laws are in a sense an algorithm mm. that maps input data, today's uh, data, into output data, which is tomorrow's data. Uh, and the whole of, that can be extended to the whole of nature. The whole universe is really doing a gigantic computation. So if you think of the universe as like a computer, then the next question is, uh, well, what is the software? That's the hardware, but what is the software? Well, the software, of course, are, are the laws we've been talking about. So now, um, in practice, this makes very little difference, but uh, it's deeply different mm. in principle because if the laws are really like software, uh, then they will be limited, like all computers are, um, to the finite resources available to the great computational machine we call the universe. Um, just like your desktop computer doesn't have infinite memory or infinite processing speed, the same is true of the whole universe. And you can work out what the limitations are. Uh, Seth Lloyd at MIT worked this out a few years ago. And uh, it turns out that, uh, for example, the information uh, capacity of the universe, take the whole thing out as far as we can in principle see uh, because of the finite speed of light, um, it turns out it's uh, 1 followed by 122 zeros. So that's a very big number. Uh, so if um, you say to uh, a physicist, say, down the road here at uh, Fermilab, um, I think that the law of conservation of electric charge will fail at the level of one part in 10 to the 122, uh, they'd say, well, uh, so what? Uh, you know, leave us alone. Nobody's ever going to measure that accuracy. But, and here's the significant thing, uh, this number that Seth Lloyd calculated is time dependent. And if you go back... Uh, to just after the Big Bang, at the time when the structure of the universe and uh, everything that we now know about its, uh, what we would think of as its low energy laws were being fashioned, uh, when the universe was in effect being put together, that number was much smaller. So small, in fact, that the laws mm -hmm. that we find in the textbook would have 
would have been uh, sloppy, unfocused, uh, ambiguous. There would have been a lot of wiggle room. And so uh, now we have an image, not that the laws somehow already existed before the universe, uh, but they came into being with the universe um, in a sort of approximate manner, unfocused manner. And then they zeroed in over time on this uh, uh, curiously biofriendly set. Now this uh, sounds revolutionary, but it's certainly not new. Uh, John Wheeler, uh, famous for coining the term black holes, was saying much the same 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, he says uh, there are, uh, has a wonderful statement, there is no law except the law that there is no law. Uh, so he, he wanted everything to come out of higgledy-piggledy was the way he put it. Um, so but the, you're suggesting something like a pilot. If there's a zeroing in process, there's something or right. something, something running pulling, the something process. Something pulling these laws towards a final bio-friendly state. And of course, the thing that's pulling it is the, uh, in much later on in the universe, the existence of life and observers and the fact that the universe has engineered its own self-awareness. And so, But the universe uh, is working towards life. Life right. isn't there at the beginning. Right. So this is the, the big mystery. How can we explain uh, the, uh, when the laws were being laid down, so to mm -hmm. speak, just after the Big Bang, that they knew about life and mind and so on coming along uh, billions of years later. It looks like backward causation. Now, this is an issue that was addressed by uh, none other than John Wheeler about 30 years ago. Um, and uh, he appealed to, uh, to quantum physics. Now, quantum physics is a weird and wonderful thing, and uh, people probably know uh, that it leads to some very uh, counterintuitive, even bizarre results. And one of the results, Einstein expressed very uh, succinctly, he called uh, spooky action at a distance. It means that uh, particles a long way apart, maybe uh, millions of light years apart, uh, are somehow linked to each other. Uh, you can't use it to send information uh, faster than light, but what goes on over there on that side of the universe and what goes on over there on that side of the universe have a subtle linkage. And the same linkage across space is a linkage in time, including going back in time. Uh, and this idea has been made very explicit uh, just in the last uh, year by Stephen Hawking, mm -hmm. uh, who um, uh, in his new work, he calls it top-down cosmology, uh, says that uh, when you apply quantum physics to the universe as a whole, normally just apply to atoms and molecules, but when you apply it to the universe as a whole, uh, you cannot avoid uh, this uh, backward-in-time aspect, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, in the lab, what you normally do as you typically prepare an atom in a certain quantum state. And then Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which is central to quantum mechanics, tells you that at a later time, the state of that atom is going to be some, somewhat fuzzy and, uh, and undetermined. Uh, and that fuzziness grows with time. Well, the fuzziness goes back in time as well. It goes in both directions of time. Uh, now, when you come to applying quantum physics to cosmology, you can't prepare the initial state of the universe. The experimenter can't set the universe up in a certain quantum state. We don't know what the now, initial quantum state of the universe was. We am I to work backwards. Am I to understand that what you are suggesting, hardly endorsing and fully asserting this to be the case, but suggesting as a possibility, is that intelligence, even at the highest level that we've attained, that is human intelligence, may have worked backwards in time to organize the very nature of, say, the Big Bang itself. Right. When we make observations of the universe uh, now, uh, quantum observations, the, the uh, observations we choose to make affect the nature of reality as it was in the past. There isn't a fixed history. This is what Stephen Hawking has brought out so uh -huh. clearly, that you cannot say that there is a unique history leading from the Big Bang to the present moment. Uh, in quantum physics, there's a whole multiplicity of histories, many histories, that are all folded together in an amalgam. 
And of course, we can only... Or do they exist on separate time tracks? Well, some people think that they really exist and they're all out there in, yeah. in parallel on separate time tracks. Uh, and that's really a philosophical issue. But the one it's thing also a science fiction device. Uh, right. But the one yeah. thing that is uh, absolutely clear is that only those histories that lead to the existence of life and observers can be included. Uh, when you're doing this calculation of what was the initial state of the universe and what histories went into it, you can only have those that are consistent with the universe we now observe because we're here observing it. So the, the very fact we are here observing the universe and that there is life and the existence of observers um, is, in a sense, affecting the way uh, the universe was put together in the, in, the, in the past. And I say in a sense because we can't change the past. We can't use observations now to go back and change the laws of physics. As but we are. have in some sense made the past. But, but we have in some sense uh, resolved the ambiguities, the wow. way I put it. That, that uh, To say there was no past would be wrong. Uh, but the past was fuzzy and indeterminate, and our observations mm -hmm. now in part resolve uh, that, that ambiguity. Now, is this wonderful speculation, is it yours and yours alone, or is it part of a wider movement. Are there other people associated right. with yeah. it? Wheeler I've mentioned, uh, Hawking I've mentioned, you know, these are some pretty heavy hitters. What, to be uh, sure. What I'm doing that's going beyond their agenda is they, uh, they assume that the states of the past are sort of fuzzy uh, and that our observations now link back to the past through quantum physics, but they always assume that the laws, um, uh, they, they have the same laws, at least certainly Hawking does. Uh, what I'm uh, suggesting is that we extend uh, the role of the uh, in quantum physics to the laws as well. So in other words, uh, we don't just select the states of the past, we select the laws of the past as well. As Lenin said when they got him off the train and he landed in St. Petersburg and saw the revolution going on, es spindelt, the mind reels. And this is very, very exciting stuff. Uh, when we return, some com we, we pause in just a moment for a news update, I want to get to something simpler, merely extraterrestrial life. And I've also got a clip that I want to play for you from Carl Sagan oh, talking with us many years ago about how, what the consequences might be after or during our first encounter with extraterrestrial life. We return to Paul Davies and a few minutes of Carl Sagan after an update on the news. And we return to Paul Davies. What's the name of that committee that you're on in the SETI operation? Oh, uh, uh, the uh, SETI Post-Detection Committee. Right. Right. What yeah, does that so, mean? Well, uh, uh, the way it was put to me when I was persuaded to join it, it's uh, uh, the great uh, committee to be on because it only meets if uh, ET should uh, make contact. But uh, that's not true. We are going to convene this committee again uh, soon because it's uh, charged with the responsibility of thinking uh, how should we respond, if at all, uh, in the event that a message is received. And I like to tell people, if ET calls on my watch, I'm the second person to know if the system works properly. It's a very question that uh, Carl Sagan was addressing way back in 1973, his first appearance on this program. I had just begun to do this program. And I think I first met Carl uh, on that very occasion, but we then discovered that we came from the same place in Brooklyn and discovered that, and he became a, a rather uh, frequent guest on this program and rather a good friend. At any rate, from 1973, Carl Sagan, uh, who was then a, and remained an astronomer at Cornell University, discussing the likely reaction to contact with uh, an alien civilization. There's one question that's been on my mind through all this conversation. It's an indulgence of my own professional concerns and interests. Um, there are social psychological implications particularly in the question of what happens when we ultimately do make contact with some civilization at our own or at a higher level. Um, 
We haven't done too well when bands of men, members of the same species, have suddenly come upon each other in a forest clearing. Indeed, bands of men called nations don't do too well these days in fully understanding each other and getting along in a cooperative, mutually uh, satisfying way. What really might the consequences be when that contact is made, both in terms of how the contact will go, but also, of course, in terms of our own attitudes towards ourselves? and uh, the consequences for the further playing out of the drama of our own civilization? It's a very deep question, and I, I can't pretend to have any definitive answers, but I'll, I'm, I'm glad to tell you what I think. Uh, surely the history of our own species has been a very dismal one in this, in this regard, and, and almost every time uh, two societies meet and one is technologically just slightly more advanced than the other, the, the more advanced guys wipe out the less advanced guys, even though the less advanced guys may be better artistically or ethically or all sorts of other ways. Um, and many people have, uh, have a fear that uh, that will happen when we make contact. Uh, I think that's unlikely for many reasons. One is um, that we cannot, at least in the next few centuries, pose a threat to anybody else because the great distances between the stars provides a kind of natural quarantine. Um, so I think it's certainly not an immediate problem. They're safer on their side of the galaxy than we were in the old days on our side of the Atlantic. Absolutely right. And another aspect of it is that uh, I can, after all, the, the most likely contact mode is radio. So we have a big message, let's say. Let's say the Encyclopedia Galactica comes in. Well, we don't assimilate it right away. We have to understand it slowly. We have to test out each aspect of it to make sure we haven't misunderstood something. That's an enterprise of decades or centuries. That's not something that's going to happen right away. And uh, it's kind of as, of as if we just discovered, uh, let's say, uh, uh, all of the literature of ancient Greece. We didn't know anything about them, and suddenly here was Aristotle and Plato and Archimedes and Euclid and Thucydides and Herodotus and those fellows. Well, we take a time for us to, uh, to assimilate all that. It's one-way communication in time. We don't talk to Thucydides, but he talks to us. It would have a significant effect on our civilization, but slowly, at a rate that we could assimilate. And I think that's likely to be the case of uh, successful interstellar contact. The final point I'd make is that, uh, is that once such contact were made, once it were clear that the alien civilization were very different from us, I think the differences among men would, uh, would rapidly disappear and uh, the similarities uh, between us, among us, would be entirely clear. I could see contact having a very uh, unifying and positive uh, consequence from that. Well, I've got one. He was a spellbinder. Absolutely. And uh, what are your thoughts, just in hearing that? And well, what would you add? Uh, of course, he was a trailblazer for this whole uh, project of SETI, the Search mm -hmm. for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And, a few things have changed uh, since the early days. Uh, uh, one of the things is that it's now possible to sweep the skies with radio telescopes and look at mm. uh, billions of radio channels simultaneously. There was a lot of thought given in the early days about what frequency would the aliens use and uh, uh, they would have to be smarter than us and so they'd figure out what we had figured out about them and all those sorts of things. That's largely gone away. Um, the one thing that it seems to me uh, that stands in the way of any likelihood of uh, success in the near future, and I notice he was saying when, not if, um, is the following, that uh, because of the finite speed of light, 
there is no way that an alien civilization, say a thousand uh, light years away, uh, which would be near uh, uh, by uh, even by optimistic SETI standards, um, there's no way they can know that we exist because they can observe uh, the Earth only as it was a thousand years ago. And uh, so uh, there would be no signature of, uh, of technology or civilization, I don't think, uh, a thousand years ago. Um, in about another 900 years, they'll be uh, picking up our first uh, radio broadcasts. And then uh, maybe they will send us a message. So uh, in a couple of thousand years, uh, it may make sense uh, to listen in. So uh, what can we expect now? I think the best we could expect would be to stumble across some indirect evidence for radio traffic in the galaxy that's not intended for us. Uh, so uh, there's no real danger that suddenly we're going to have Encyclopedia Galactica or something worse uh, beamed at us. Uh, that much more likely is that there will simply be some uh, something funny, uh, you know, a fishy signal that uh, eventually we decide is a signature of intelligence. And well, then now, we can announce the, that we are not alone. Given the, the tremendous improvement in the instrumentation, we can scan uh, the universe much more fully than we did uh, way back, say, in 1973. Uh, the arrays of, at Arecibo and other places right. give you tremendous um, uh, access to all the buzz that's going on in our universe. Right. Uh, and given that and the fact that we picked up nothing after years and years of, uh, of uh, scanning, of, astro, uh, 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 of radio scanning of the universe, doesn't that suggest that maybe there isn't life out there or, or it isn't very common? No. Uh, it, it, the, the truth of the matter is we've sampled only a very small portion still. of the galaxy, still. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, unless um, there were a fantastically powerful uh, beacon that beaming in all directions, or unless they were actually deliberately beaming a message at us, we wouldn't have picked up uh, anything, I think, yet. Now, in another 50 years with the improvements in technology, then uh, maybe a different story. We may have sampled a very much larger fraction of the galaxy. And then if we found mm -hmm. nothing, then uh, I guess the guys that do this would start uh, getting a bit yeah. pessimistic. There is, of course, another front on which all of this is uh, being worked through, and uh, the search for extraterrestrial life is being pursued, and that is direct planetary exploration. Oh, yes, but nobody expects there to be an intelligent life within our solar system. The best we can hope to explore are the neighboring planets, and humans may one day get to Mars. I hope they do. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, they may well find life on Mars, but I have to say I think it will end up being a disappointment because we know Mars and Earth trade rocks uh, that are blasted off these planets by comet impacts, and these rocks will uh, inevitably convey microorganisms. Cocooned inside a rock, you see, a microbe can be perfectly happy in space. And I think Earth rocks have gone to Mars with Earth microbes, and Mars rocks have come to Earth with any putative We're Mars microbes. You're so playing here with Francis Crick's panspermia. Well, hypothesis. yeah, but it's uh, uh, he wanted a, uh, some sort of uh, mystical directed panspermia from yeah. some superintelligence. Do, do explain that elsewhere. just now. Oh, yes, well, he, um, uh, he famously uh, wrote that the uh, origin of life seems, uh, I think his phrase was, to the common man, uh, quaint way of putting it, um, to be almost like a miracle. Uh, so many of the special conditions that are necessary to get it going. Um, so he was, uh, like many bi biologists, uh, have been struck by the fact that even the simplest form of life is so stupendously complex. It's very hard to see how it got going from a random chemical mixture, and it remains an unsolved problem. So he said, well, maybe uh, uh, Earth was seeded with life from some uh, distant extraterrestrial uh, civilization. But of course, he only pushed the problem off. Uh, because we, we still would then have to ask where did that civilization come from and uh, and so on. Um, so I think that the 
origin of life remains one of those great unsolved problems of science. But I'm convinced it has a solution. I don't think life is a miracle. I think it was a, a natural physical process. And uh, one of the things that interests me is exactly where did physics leave off and biology begin? What, you, what made that transition? Do you remember the experiment done at the University of Chicago? Oh, yes. The Miller and yeah, Urey experiment. Very, very famous. Uh, 1953, and uh, Stanley Miller was a young student yeah. of Harold Urey, and uh, they thought, well, let's uh, cook up in the lab conditions that uh, simulated the early Earth, what they thought the early Earth might have been life like. They actually got that a bit wrong, but never mind, because they discovered within a few days uh, that uh, by, by um, sparking electricity through a mm -hmm. mixture of uh, common gases, uh, they made the building blocks of proteins called amino acids. Yeah. And, and people were very excited because they thought, well, if you can do that in a week, you know, in a million years, maybe something would crawl out of this flask. But I think it was soon realized that this was a bit of a blind alley because um, these amino acids are, uh, the way uh, I like to express it, is uh, thermodynamically downhill. That is, that uh, they will inevitably form naturally, a bit like crystallization. Uh, it's something that's sort of built into the laws of physics. And you find amino acids around the universe. At least you find amino acids in meteorites uh, that come from beyond Earth. So they're easy to make. Um, the hard part is not making the bricks uh, it's putting the bricks together into, to form the house. Uh, and that's a very different proposition. And nobody has really figured out that step, the elaborate uh, arrangement of the fundamental building blocks to form uh, even the simplest living thing. We are about to uh, pause in a few minutes. I've got one whopper question I want to put to you. But first, I do want to invite telephone calls because in five or six minutes, we will be on to the phones and to the emails. I mentioned once, uh, in introducing you, I think even before you came into the studio, that you won the Templeton Prize right. a few years ago. It's a very important prize. It's given uh, munificently, as I understand it, by Sir John Templeton, an American uh, investor type who ran mutual funds, who um, was knighted by the British after he took up British citizenship, right. I gather. Uh, and the prize is basically for work in the reconciling or the integrating of the perspectives of science and the perspectives of religion. Yes, or spirituality. Or spirituality, something of that sort. Which, right. which would suggest that you are one of those rare scientists who somehow goes for the God hypothesis in some form or other. Oh, is well, it true? The, well, some form or other. Um, what uh, Sir John uh, takes uh, pains to point out, uh, and he's uh, very eloquent uh, about this, is uh, the prize is given for progress in religion. And that uh, implies that uh, the existing state of religion uh, is in need of progress. And indeed, he believes it is. Uh, and he, uh, the way he expresses it is that if you take any field of human endeavor other than religion, you take uh, uh, economics or sport or science or technology or medicine, all of these things have advanced in leaps and bounds in the last three or four hundred years. Uh, but religion, religion remains largely mired in the past. Uh, that is to say uh, that uh, people look back to uh, sacred texts uh, a couple of thousand years and uh, their thinking hasn't changed very much in that time. And so he had uh, this extraordinary vision uh, well, 30, 40 years ago uh, that if we took a leaf out of uh, science's book and said, we don't know everything. Uh, we don't have the last word uh, on, uh, on religion and spirituality. We know only a tiny amount uh, that uh, by applying the techniques of science, that is being open-minded and investigating new lines of inquiry, uh, we may move the subject of religion on and drag it uh, kicking and screaming into what was then the 20th century. It's now the 21st century. So it's a very revolutionary idea that uh, the way he put it so well is that we could ad uh, admire 
the sacred text, but we must move on. Uh, and uh, the uh, main problem with religion, he said, uh, the standard religion, is that people think they know all the answers already. And they're not open-minded enough to think that we know only a tiny fraction about uh, the nature of reality and uh, spiritual. Therefore, if I, did, if I turned psychologist and gave you uh, a free association test, and one of the items was to which you've got to give your first thoughts in response to the stimulus word, and the word were God, what would you say? Oh, well, I always have the same answer. You know, whose God are we talking about? Uh, if we're talking about the God of popular religion, then I don't think many scientists uh, are prepared to go along with that. Uh, what I prefer to do, and I must say, Sir John himself mm. uh, says he does not like the word God and he does not like the word religion. He casts around for things like ultimate reality and so on. He has, has mm -hmm. a number of phrases. Um, uh, but I think the key point here is, is the following. Uh, it's not, does there exist a cosmic magician or some sort of super being outside the universe who's uh, planned it all by intelligent design or something? That's not uh, the issue, I think. Um, the issue is, is there ultimately some sort of meaning or purpose to the universe? And you don't need to have a um, sort of uh, fairy story, uh, traditional cosmic magician to give the universe meaning and purpose. The universe can have meaning and purpose intrinsic to it. It can emerge with it in the manner that I've been discussing with the laws of physics. And what I leave open, indeed argue for, in this latest book uh, is that the universe is about more than just laws and life and observers. It's about thinking beings who can come to comprehend the universe and the rules on which it runs. Uh, there is a scheme of things which is unfolding before us. You can't be a scientist without believing that there is a deep mathematical scheme in the universe. There's something going on, if you like, and we're part of that, only a modest part. We're not central to it, but nevertheless, we have uh, emerged from nature and we're part of this great cosmic scheme of things. Uh, and that, to me, suggests something like, and you have to put it in scare quotes, meaning or purpose in the universe. Now, uh, some people would call that God. They may say, well, this is a God uh, within the universe, a sort of natural God. Um, I, uh, these are just words, because when people use that word God, it's so loaded, uh, because it comes with all of these uh, cultural connotations, uh, all of the baggage that people bring to it, that I would rather not use it. Uh, but meaning and purpose I feel more comfortable with, but you have to be careful with those terms too. And purpose must have an origin, an agent. Well, that's the, you, it doesn't have to, you see, because everybody accepts that meaning and purpose uh, come out of the biological realm mm. from, from meaningless atoms. You've got these atoms, yeah. stupid atoms, blindly so blundering just around. Just as consciousness uh, does, which is another great... And they engineer purpose. Even, even a bacterium yeah. behaves purposefully. And so uh, you, it doesn't have to be imposed from without by a magician. It can be intrinsic to the system. And with that, we will pause, take care of some overdue commercials, and then directly onto the phones. And we will go directly to the phones and shortly to the email for your questions and comments to Paul Davies. After I clarify one or two things, yet once again, uh, the title of the f a very important new book by Paul Davies, Cosmic Jackpot, Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life, is now published by Houghton Mifflin. You are the first caller. Good evening. Oh, hello. Uh, I'm an amateur astronomer. I just got back from a star party out in Mishawaka. <laughs> but uh, the question has always uh, perplexed me, you know, the, the, the meaning and the reason for us uh, being here. But uh, I've read, you know, that, that had the conditions uh, of the electron or any, any number of these, uh, you know, parameters of, of the universe and physics and math been any different. We, we wouldn't exist to ask the question, why is it the way it is? So, you know, maybe it's 
you know, we're, it's the other way around. We, we're, we're here, we're, we wonder why it is the way it is, but had it been any different, we, we wouldn't be here to ask the question. Yeah, well, you're quoting the anthropic principle yet once again. Uh, yes, uh, so a lot of people uh, uh, regard this as uh, the end of the story. It's a, a bit of a showstopper. Um, uh, they just say, well, you know, if it had been any different, we wouldn't be here, so what, let's move on. Well, I, I think that actually just avoids the issue. Uh, and it's been expressed uh, very nicely by, in a parable, by the Canadian philosopher John Leslie. He says, uh, imagine that you're uh, blindfolded and stood uh, before uh, a firing squad, and there's a dozen men with uh, armed rifles uh, pointing at you, and the order comes to shoot, and uh, miraculously, you're still alive. What are you to conclude? Well, you could say, well, they missed, because uh, if they'd have hit me, I wouldn't be here to ask the question. So that's the end of the story, <laughs> and you walk away. Well, of course, you would demand an explanation. You would say, well, obviously, uh, it was a sham uh, firing uh, squad, or that uh, somebody tampered with the ammunition, or something of that sort. You would seek some other explanation. And it's a bit that way, that just to say, well, you know, it's a lucky thing, uh, but uh, that's it, um, I think is not very satisfactory. So most scientists I know are comfortable with the idea of seeking an explanation. They don't just shrug it aside it's, like that. They not, want to look uh, yeah, It's not satisfying just to say that right. th things are the way they are. Right. They're, therefore, I'm here to ask this question. Yeah, so in a sense, it's not there, very there scientific the, uh, to, just, uh, to just shrug it aside. I always like wonder, that. you know, uh, or... or uh, of course, uh, many people have wondered, you know, why is it that the coincidence of the, of the moon angular diameter is the same as the sun to create a total eclipse uh, or that's uh, a good one actually because it's very hard to see that there is any anthropic connection there that is right. to say that our own existence uh, depends upon that uh, rather remarkable the coincidence uh, the, there's a Euler's equation are you familiar with that? Oh, yes indeed. E, yes the, the 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 five main numbers one you know uh, zero uh, pi uh, and and then there's E, which is uh, a logarithm of uh, growth, so bacterial growth, and or uh, compounding interest. Right, right. And, and, and then there's I, the imaginary number. But if you put right. them in a combination, they they all cancel out. E right. to the power of I times but, pi plus but this, but this one is, equals zero. But this is different. This is fixed by uh, logic and the definitions, the mathematical definitions. So mm -hmm. it couldn't be otherwise. There is no choice. But the universe could have been otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's the key point. Einstein once said. Uh, did God have any choice in the nature of his creation? Something of that sort. And what he meant was, could the universe be otherwise? And uh, I think the answer is yes. So therefore, we want to explain why it is as it is. Sir, we thank you for the call. We move quickly on to another. 591-7200 is the number. If you've been trying to reach us, there's now, of course, one line available. And here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I am calling about your comment earlier about people who have a religious understanding feeling that they have all the answers. And right. I have a Christian understanding, and I certainly don't feel that I have all the answers. Well, I'm I, pleased to hear it. Pardon? I'm pleased to hear it. Well, there's a quote that, uh, that I'll try to get this right, and I think it, uh, it, it says a lot. It says, it is not doubt that is the opposite of faith, but certainty. And uh, one of the reasons that I'm a Christian is that I don't really think you have all the answers. Oh, no, I wouldn't claim to. And no scientist should ever claim to have all the answers. It's the essence of science that we're uh, on a voyage of discovery. It's a project uh, in progress. It's, yes, uh, okay, I was going toward, uh, but 
the other thing I wanted to say, uh, did you see that interview in uh, New Science, New Science uh, Amanda Gester's interview with uh, Leonard Susskind? Uh, the, uh, I, well, I, I'm I'm familiar with uh, Leonard and his uh, point of view. Uh, I can't recall that particular interview, but uh, come to your point. Well, uh, I'll read just the last one. It's a long interview, uh, but basically he makes the case that the the way you can explain the anthropic principle and the fact that we exist is that there's more than millions of universes out there. Right. And and uh, in, in, in in this in our universe, we got it right. Right, we've yeah. been discussing that earlier, and uh, and it's uh, pluses and minuses. And I said two cheers for the multiverse. It, but it the point, that I, the quote from him that I wanted to read, which is, uh, he's asked, if we don't accept this idea, are we stuck with intelligent design? And his answer, and this is the guy who came up with string theory, is that uh, I'll just read the end of it. Without any explanation of nature's fine tunings, we will be hard pressed to answer intelligent design critics. One might argue that the hope that a mathematically unique solution will emerge is as faith-based as intelligent design. Yes, I think I agree with uh, Lenny when he says that. So, uh, he's, um, uh, we, you're talking about three theories, you see. You're talking about intelligent design, you're talking about something like string theory that may or may not one day give a unique description of the world, describe only one world, and I call that promissory triumphalism. And then there's the multiverse theory. And we've been talking earlier on about Davis's fourth way, because I think that uh, you don't have to buy into any of those. And with that, sir, we must move on uh, commercials in just a moment. But I do want to say before that, uh, since we've mentioned Leonard Susskind a number of times, um, we did, of course, a full discussion with Susskind about a year ago, less than that. And it is available on our audio archive, as tonight's discussion will be in perhaps a week or so. We are about to go to the newsroom for an update and then we'll be directly back after some following commercials. And we go directly back to Paul Davies, drawing from his new book, Cosmic Jackpot, Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life. 5917200. And you are the next caller. Good evening. Good evening, Milt. First, yes, I just want to say this is really exciting because, one, you're, you're having a, an author that I felt is just, just perfectly matched for your show and your interest in cosmology. Um, I've, I've read in the past, I've read several of uh, Mr. Davies' books, God and the New Physics, The Mind of God About Time. And you were about to touch an issue, and then you went to a break, and that was the issue of consciousness. And my question was really to, to Mr. Davies is, what, what attempts have existed to link consciousness and physics? And then take that a step further, has anyone postulated a link between physics and the soul? Yeah, the problem of consciousness, of course, as you well know, Paul, is a matter of great concern to modern philosophers and modern neuroscientists as well, because there's a mystery there, too. How does what we mean by consciousness emerge from mere matter? That's right. Um, as John Marcel says, how does the brain do it? Yeah. Uh, we know something's going on in there, but what is it exactly that it takes uh, to bestow consciousness upon it? And the way I often put it is, that we have all this swirling electricity in this building, but it's presumably not conscious, and yet uh, something that's happening in our skulls is. And as a physicist, I would like to know uh, what does it take? What particular physical processes have thoughts and uh, uh, sensations and so on attached, and what don't? That's one problem. And the other problem is, of course, the, the famous mind-body problem. Why is it that when I want to uh, raise my arm, it goes up obligingly? There it happened. 
uh, how can thoughts do that? How can thoughts move matter? Well, uh, you'll be jumped upon uh, by most philosophers and um, neuroscientists for casting it in those terms, but to a physicist, physicists of course like to think in simple terms about the world and get right down to the fundamentals, and I think physicists do not understand uh, how consciousness fits into the picture. Now, it doesn't mean it's magic. I think one day uh, we will incorporate consciousness into our uh, scientific worldview. Uh, all I can say is that almost certainly at some level quantum mechanics is going to come into it. And the only link that uh, has persistently been there, and some people don't like it, uh, has been between consciousness and quantum physics. The role of the observer, which we were discussing earlier, plays a crucial role in quantum physics. Um, but can I just follow up? Yes. Can I ask then, if, if you're talking about the potential quantum physics playing a role in consciousness, doesn't that imply then that 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 consciousness can can live in and on in a different state? Uh, you're asking, can consciousness survive bodily death? Is that the yeah. the, the point? Um, well. Uh, in principle, clearly it could, because if you believe that uh, consciousness is really like uh, uh, software, it's like um, uh, information uh, as opposed to matter, uh, then uh, information always needs a physical medium uh, to be uh, expressed, but it doesn't have to be the brain. Uh, and just as we can uh, convert uh, information on the hard disk of a computer into a CD or tape or some other, so, in principle, the information in your brain could be uh, could be put somewhere else. But, of course, in practice, we would have to uh, wonder how all that was being organized and who was uh, managing this uh, transfer process. So, we, we can, there's no logical reason why consciousness couldn't survive bodily death, but that's a bit different from saying that one believes it is, in fact, going to be the case. Let me add, uh, stay with us, if you will, for a moment, sir. Let me add an email that I got in front of me. Uh, years ago, in The Immense Journey, Lauren Isley proposed that the meaning of the universe emerges from the process of evolution and is best described as an expansion of consciousness. Do you propose that meaning emerges in a teleological sense? Uh, well, uh, yes, actually. It comes rather close to what I'm proposing towards the end of this book, which is that uh, the universe is 13.7 uh, uh, billion years old. It's a long time in human terms. It's actually very young. It's uh, still uh, just uh, setting out on its uh, great cosmic journey. And we can imagine that in the future, life uh, uh, maybe from Earth will spread out uh, across the galaxy, and maybe there's life out there already that is spreading out. And then in the trillions of years available in the future, um, there's no reason why uh, the universe can't, uh, so to speak, be taken over by life and mind, and that uh, this could become a cosmic force, not just a little local force in reshaping planets, but literally a cosmic force. Of course, I've been arguing that it's playing an indispensable role um, in uh, a sort of feedback loop in bringing the laws of uh, biofriendly laws of physics into being. So I think the universe coming to not only engineering life and engineering its own self-awareness, but coming to understand itself uh, through uh, consciousness and uh, um, going beyond consciousness, not just observation. Human beings actually have come to understand, in part, how the universe is being run. That, I think, is, is part of the great cosmic story. And, of course, it has a teleological component. Um, but there is room for teleology in our physical view of the world once one abandons the notion of fixed platonic laws. For those of our listeners who didn't take philosophy 101, define teleology. <laughs> teleology uh, really goes back to uh, the ideas of Aristotle, that there are final causes of things, that things um, 
uh, not only a, a, a receive a push from the past, but a pull from the future, so that uh, there are processes that uh, are directed, uh, as opposed to just haphazardly exploring the space of possibilities. And so to, to believe in teleology, you have to believe that the universe is going somewhere, uh, as opposed to just uh, blundering its, its way blindly uh, into, the, into the future. Sir, any last thoughts or uh, comments from you? No, this, this is just, I, I've been waiting to have this discussion on your show for a long time, and it's, it's just, I just thank Paul Davis for all his great works. All his books over brought me much enjoyment and many headaches as I've tried to ponder what he's saying, uh, but I uh, really enjoy his work. Well, thank sure. you very much for the call. Very valuable contribution, in fact. Five nine one seven two double zero. You are next on the air. Good evening. Hey, thanks for the for taking my call, Mel. Yes, sir. Yeah, I I want to uh, speak of Godel's theorem. I just read an article recently by uh, the great philosopher of science, Stanley Jockey, and he said uh, even Stephen Hawking has come around on this and agrees with Godel that you can't explain a system, you know, the universe from within the system. You have to go outside the system, and you haven't addressed that. Uh, tonight, and I just was wondering what you thought. Right, okay. Well, it's uh, interesting, of course, it's uh, Gödel's uh, centenary year last year, and uh, uh, there are a number of books and things that have uh, appeared about him, and uh, I've uh, thought a lot about his work, and I've um, uh, e even made uh, a radio show about his, his work and his famous incompleteness theorem. And for those listeners who don't know what on earth we're talking about, uh, I should say that uh, you correctly point out that in a formal system of reasoning, um, such as mathematics, uh, there will always be uh, statements that cannot be proved uh, from within that system. So these are undecidable statements, um, uh, with, with one or two exceptions. And so uh, we uh, have to accept that if the laws of physics are uh, mathematical statements, then Gödel's theorem, in incompleteness theorem, will apply to them. And so uh, the question is, um, therefore, we can never express everything completely on the basis of mathematics. Uh, that is certainly true. Um, and it's, uh, you also correctly point out that Stephen Hawking did something of a U-turn uh, because he always claimed that one day, maybe one day soon, we would have a final theory of everything. And he now says that such a theory can never exist uh, because of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. All of that is true uh, if you stick with the platonic conventional uh, notion of mathematics as uh, precise, infinitely precise, really existing uh, statements. Uh, and, of course, I've been at pains to point out that my uh, proposed departure, the way we might solve some of these problems, is to abandon Platonism in mathematics and accept the fact that mathematics and physics are more closely linked. Instead of mathematics just being there and Mother Nature plundering the warehouse of mathematics for a few choice bits to describe the laws of physics, which is probably the way Stephen Hawking would think about it, I'm suggesting that mathematics and physics, uh, the laws of physics, co-emerge. Uh, because mathematics is intrinsic to the universe and not imposed on it from but outside. But you still have to go outside the system, according to Godel, correct? Or? Uh, you do if you believe in uh, perfect mathematics. So the point about Gödel's theorem is that uh, certain functions were uncomputable because uh, even if you let a computer run for an infinite uh, length of time, uh, it could not resolve the issue. Uh, and I'm saying that that is uh, not the correct view of the nature of mathematics. Sir, with that, I fear we must pause for a last round of commercials. And quickly back to the phones. You are next on the air. Good evening. Thank you. Theoretically, I understand how physical matter could exist forever going forward. 
But if physical matter existed forever, in a sense we could always go back one more day or unit of time. How do we get today without a start of get to today without a start of this physical universe out of something that's not of this universe? Uh, are you uh, simply referring to the problem of where matter has come from, how it originated? Is that yeah, this universe, physical matter, because you're right. You're, if you just limit to the discussion of physical matter. Right. Correct. Okay. Well, that, this is a problem that was uh, deeply mysterious for a long time, but has been more or less solved, I think, to the satisfaction of most uh, physicists. That um, Einstein, uh, of course, famously told us that E equals mc squared, and energy has mass, and mass uh, has energy. And uh, this opens the way to uh, particles of matter being uh, formed from energy. And you don't have to go very far from the studio uh, to see a place where they do this every day. Uh, this is at Fermilab. Uh, the particle accelerators there uh, routinely create new particles of matter. Oh, I got uh, that part of, of it. Right. I could interrupt on that part. That's not a problem. Okay, but so it's then going to the first start of that. It could always go back one more day. R right, but the, if you go back to the Big Bang... Uh, uh, which, a week before uh, the Big Bang. You could always go back a week and you ah, get to... So we're not now talking about the origin of matter. We're talking about the origin of the universe. Oh, thank you for what, clarifying. Okay, uh, because that's a very different thing. Uh, because uh, that's a much tougher problem. Uh, which is why I have a section in my book saying what happened before the Big Bang. Um, and there are really just, uh, very briefly, just two points of view. One is uh, goes right back to uh, St. Augustine in the 5th century, that the world was made with time and not in time, he said. Uh, that is, mm -hmm. the, the Big Bang is the origin of space and time, mm -hmm. so there was no before. That's one point of view. The other point of view is that there are many bangs, so that there's uh, some sort of multiverse. Uh, we talked earlier about a theory called eternal inflation. Uh, in which uh, there's always uh, some expanding space uh, somewhere and at some time, and each individual universe, like ours, has uh, a, a point of birth. Right, that begs uh, but the question. the assemblage as a whole lives forever. Okay. Well, well, thank you, and that's interesting. I appreciate that. We thank you, sir, for the call. Here's an interesting um, email I want to put to you. All life on Earth is DNA-based. If life does exist elsewhere, quote, easy to make and widespread, as... Professor Davies has suggested, it certainly will not be DNA-based. Why then haven't non-DNA life forms evolved here on Earth alongside DNA life? The point is, if the universe is conducive to life, why only DNA life are here? Yeah, well, that's astonishing because I uh, ran a workshop at my new uh, center at Arizona State University um, uh, just last uh, December addressing precisely that question, hmm. looking for another form of life here on Earth. And it's astonishing that microbiologists have never taken the trouble to look. And so we've developed a research uh, program and are going to push ahead with um, one or two plans to search for life as we don't know it, not out in space, right under our noses, aliens here on Earth. <laughs> because, because, you see, the point is, um, all life that has so far been studied yeah. uh, seems to be uh, so interrelated it must have had a common origin. But if life can happen once, can it happen many times? Could life have uh, started many times over on planet Earth? Some science fiction writers have posited that rather than on a carbon cycle, you might have life on a silicon cycle. Oh, yes. Now, you can uh, start uh, playing that game. You could substitute for the different uh, elements. Uh, you've got carbon, no. nitrogen oxygen, uh, phosphorus, and sulfur. And you can take any of those and say, well, what about substituting something else? Um, that's one way. The other way is to go with those substances. Uh, but you'd have different building blocks, not DNA. Maybe you'd have some, some other uh, molecule. It turns out that it's actually ha pretty hard to find other molecules. But you could even go with nucleic acids and uh, proteins, but have a different suite of amino acids. Is it conceivable to you, then, are you saying, that 
such life may actually exist on Earth. Right here now, yes, under our noses, in our noses. Even. Where in our noses? Was that one of the places you'd go looking uh, for? Well, you see, the point is almost all life is microbial, and you can't yeah. tell from looking at a microbe about its innards. You've got mm. to analyze it chemically. And any microbial life that does not uh, belong to our system uh, is going to be uh, very unresponsive to the sort of techniques microbiologists use to position them on the tree of life. We are almost out of time, but uh, let me put this last large question to you. What might be empirically available that is not yet so, but which, if it were, would provide data that would help to resolve some of the issues we've been discussing? Oh, uh, my idea that the laws of physics are not absolute, eternal, and fixed, uh, but ha have a sort of uh, flex flexibility, flexi laws, mm -hmm. if you like, um, is testable. And I propose a test in the book, and it has to do with uh, in entangling uh, 400 atoms uh, together, which is what the people trying to build a quantum computer uh, are, are proposing to do. And uh, I say that when you get to 400 atoms, um, the a quantum state describing that system is uh, so vast, has so many branches, as we say, in the wave function, that it actually um, exceeds the total information carrying capacity of the whole universe, and something will go wrong with standard quantum mechanics at that point, which would flow, throw a fly in the ointment of the people trying to build quantum computers. Now, this requires what in terms of uh, actual instrumentation? Uh, it, it, in the lab, it requires um, very low temperatures and uh, very uh, careful screening of the system from the surrounding world. But this is part of a billion dollar industry, an active research program. The people trying to uh, get an array of atoms or other uh, quantum objects and link them together in a way that's called entanglement. Uh, so they form a common quantum state. And they can do it for about 10 or 12 particles at the moment. Uh, the plan is to get 10,000 to have a functioning quantum computer that could crack codes and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but I say when they get to 400, um, this, there'll be a, a natural cosmological bound that will come uh, from this uh, information uh, limit on the universe that will intrude. We shall look forward to those data as they arrive. Right. Uh, and uh, I would look forward to your being here again whenever you get to town, please. Paul Davies' newest book, Cosmic Jackpot, Why Our Universe is Just Right for Life.